Hachira Air. This is your Captain Frank J. Lapidus. And on behalf of the entire flight crew, welcome aboard. Currently, we're right on schedule, flying at a very comfortable 30,000 feet. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the in-flight Excuse me, ma'am. Mr. Shepard, can I help you? Um, I need to talk to the pilot. Frank Lapidus and I are old friends. And if you could just tell him I'm on board, I'd really appreciate it. All right. But you just have to go sit down because you can't be near the cockpit door when it's open. Sure. I understand. Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how the episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be looking at episode 506 entitled 316. This is the 92nd episode of the series and there are 29 to go. I'll just mention before things kick off that uh, lately in uh, the real world things have been certainly busy. I recently moved and whatnot. But uh, I just wanted to say how much I do appreciate the emails that people send. I will admit I've uh, been a bit lax in the last month or so in terms of uh, responding, so I do apologize. Your answers are coming. Uh, certainly the best way is to say hello to me on Twitter, where I'm looking back lost, uh, where I have all sorts of jolly conversations throughout the week about lost. I'll mention as well I've been quite lax as to checking uh, the reviews that Looking Back at Lost has received on iTunes. And uh, there really are some... some very touching and heartfelt comments that uh, you out there have made, and uh, certainly I want to want to say thank you for that. And uh, perhaps over this upcoming holiday break, when there's just a bit more time, I'll take an opportunity to share those and uh, and to uh, respond to some of the questions and comments that uh, people have uh, have placed on uh, on iTunes. So, with that bit of business out of the way, let's now get into this episode. Uh, 316, and here is the Wikipedia summary for the episode, which begins with Jack, Kate, Hurley, all having returned to the island three years since they left, and there's no place like home. The narrative then shifts to 46 hours previous, where the previous episode, This Place is Death, left off. Eloise Hawking takes Jack, Desmond, Son, Ben, all of them to a Dharma Initiative station underneath the church called the Lamp Post which was used by Dharma to find the island. Since it is constantly moving, they have developed a way to predict where it would be at a given time. When Eloise mentions that the group has only 36 hours to get on Ajira Airways Flight 316, in order to return to the island, Desmond refuses to join them and leaves. Eloise then tells Jack in private that he must bring something that belonged to his father, Christian, on the flight with him. It also gives John Locke's suicide note to Jack. The next day, Jack gets a call informing him that his grandfather, Ray, has attempted to escape from his nursing home. Jack goes to the nursing home and finds an old pair of Christian shoes and decides to take them with him. Later, Jack returns to his apartment, where he finds a Kate sleeping in his bed. He wakes her and asks where her adoptive son Aaron is, but she refuses to answer. Kate tells Jack that if he wants to get her back to the island, he must never ask her about Aaron. They then kiss passionately and fall into bed. The next morning, Jack receives a phone call from a severely beaten Ben, who tells Jack he must go to the butcher shop and retrieve Locke's dead body. Jack does so, putting Christian's shoes on Locke's feet. In the process, he leaves the suicide note in Locke's pocket. At the airport... Jack, Kate, Son, and Hurley all board flight 316. Hurley was informed by someone other than Ben and brought all the rem- bought all the remaining seats on the plane in order to spare the lives of potential passengers. 
Saeed is brought on board in the custody of Ilana. Ben is last aboard the plane, which momentarily disquiets Hurley. Also on board is Caesar. Jack asks Ben what will happen to the others in the plane, to which Ben replies, Who cares? Leaving Jack speechless. During the flight, Jack realizes that Frank J. Lapidus is piloting the plane, and Frank realizes that they are going back to the island. Jack, who has been given Locke's note by a flight attendant, reads it, which says, Jack, I wish you had believed in me. The 737 hits turbulence, and there is a flash of white light similar to what caused the time shifts. The first scene replays, following which, Jack, Kate, and Hurley are found by Jin, who is driving a new Dharma van and wearing a Dharma jumpsuit. So with that, let's now get into my thoughts about this episode. A, a wonderful episode, one that Mighty Tim on Twitter said was one of his favorites. I certainly agree. It's, I mean, it's not an A-plus, you know, constant season finale uh, type episode, but it is great. Uh, it, it's just, there's so much there, there. And I guess with that, let's get into it. Uh, it starts with an action, action-packed recap. The first 20 seconds of which, as a side note, I saw five times while Netflix was being strange and the words were out of sync with the pictures. Uh, I don't know why it does that sometimes. You know, it's when I'm on the computer and getting sound clips and all that, but say la vie. Anyhow, the episode proper opens clearly with the exact same beats, visual beats, that is to say, same visual tone, same music as the pilot. It's a splendid idea put forth by the show. It's a jarring and unusual and weird way to start things. And it's yet another time that the show forces us to ask, where are we? When are we? And how did these people get here? Jack starts running after hearing someone, Hurley, calling for help. There's a spectacular jump down the falls later, and Hurley is A-OK, and so is his guitar case something that, of course, we'll learn about in later episodes, uh, but for right now seems slightly incongruous and strange. And I think as first-time viewers, we can pick up that uh, it's a mystery for another day. Um, you know, it's almost like it's uh, a, an abridged retelling of the pilot, uh, Hurley affirming that they're back, Jack finding Kate, waking her, and so forth. Um I suppose in a sense, I mean, this is almost the introduction to, uh, I was going to say to the rest of the series. I mean, it's not because they're only in the past for, for the remainder of the season. The flip side is you can make the argument that this is the beginning of the third act of the show. I mean, they're now back on the island. Um, we don't have all the answers. We still have some flashbacks. You know, how did Locke die? How did Ben get beaten? Um, the where did Hurley's magic guitar case come from? These sort of things, but um, you know, they're all back now. Everybody who's going to be back is back. Um, so in a sense, it's a good time to kind of be revisiting the pilot because we're you know, here we are back again, and it, it's something that, especially you know, when you're when you're watching it again, when you're re watching, when you are looking back, if you will. The, this opening has such an otherworldly feel, and, and you can't help, I think, but have it strained a bit through the flash sideways. Um, I'm not arguing that it's a flash sideways, of course. It just has the same sort of where are we, who are these people, what's going on type feeling. 
Anyhow, speaking of flash sideways and flash forwards, at this point we flash back 46 hours earlier to a slightly different view of Ben, Jack's son, and Desmond entering Eloise's church. I guess it's God's church, but you know, Eloise is there. Uh, that Hitchcockian, psycho-esque uh, Bernard Herman music seems to return as they descend into the bowels of the church to reveal a whirring, clicking, swinging place. What is this place? The Dharma Initiative called it the lamppost. This is how they found the island. Rather good hook with which to end the teaser act. And for we hungry fans, it's yet another Dharma station. Isn't it nice that they just kind of jump right into them? And indeed, right after the act break, there's more about that lamppost. Did you know about this place? No. No, I didn't. Is he telling the truth? Probably not. I apologize if this is confusing, but let's pay attention, yes? The room we're standing in was constructed years ago over a unique pocket of electromagnetic energy. That energy connects to similar pockets all over the world. The people who built this room, however, were only interested in one. The island. Yes, the island. They'd gathered proof that it existed. They knew it was out there somewhere, but they just couldn't find it. Then a very clever fellow built this pendulum on the theoretical notion that they should stop looking for where the island was supposed to be and start looking for where it was going to be. What do you mean? where it was going to be. Well, this fellow presumed, and correctly as it turned out, that the island was always moving. Why do you think you were never rescued? Now, while the movements of the island seem random, this man and his team created a series of equations which tell us with a high degree of probability where it is going to be at a certain point in time. Windows, as it were, that while open, provide a route back. Unfortunately, these windows don't stay open for very long. Yours closes in 36 hours. Ah, for those heady season two days of the lengthy, twisting, mysterious, season-long unfurling of Dharma stations. Now in season five, we get a good look at, uh, at it in the teaser act, and the beans are all spilled in act one. Now, incidentally, basically, in fact, not even basically, all of that clip is exposition. It's Eloise explaining things to the audience under the guise of explaining it to the newbies. Not that I'm complaining at all. We finally, well, not finally, I'm thinking back to season one, but 
we have, without question, exposition here that fits the story. It fits it wonderfully. Uh, it's appreciated. It's not clunky. It's something that all of the characters want to know. And uh, just, a, just a solid bit of exposition and a ton of information for us to chew through. Uh, with that, the scene proceeds with Desmond delivering the message, Daniel needs help from Mama. He delivers the message and is all set to leave, but uh, not before raging at Eloise for taking four years of his life by telling him it was his purpose to be on the island. I would argue here that there are shades of Christ, as perhaps we might not dare imagine him, denying the importance of his struggles and denying the difficult road ahead. Again, certainly no uh, religious offense meant, just kind of the notion of this very human Desmond, who I've constantly argued is, uh, you know, a, a metaphor for Christ. Here he is, um, here he is not understanding his role, his important role, his role of the Savior, uh, you know, that, that he has played, that he will play. And uh, it's a tremendously human moment for Desmond, and if you're if you're following the path down Desmond as Christ, uh, if you're if you're going for that metaphor, then we certainly here have, um, I think, just a tremendously, uh, well, a tremendous moment of affirming the humanity of of either or both. Anyhow, the jam-packed scene continues. Eloise effortlessly delivering more exposition, explaining that some planes fly routes over the likely location of the island, and sure enough, we see that 316 is the one to take. Get it? You know, the biblical reference to 316? If you're a tad rusty, as I will admit I was, that's the one that goes, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And again, as always, I'm certainly not trying to push one view or another. I will admit it is a tad ironic that we're talking about uh, that son so close to Christmas. But uh, looking back at Lost is always, of course, a, uh, a uh, you know, doesn't prefer one flavor over the other. But the, uh, the impact of religion and uh, Christianity in particular on uh, literature, American literature, of which I would include Lost kind of in the larger canon of literature you know that connection certainly is not uh you know is uh it's not the first one to do it and anyhow certainly ajira is uh bringing bringing some people back to sacrifice so that others might might uh, have everlasting life uh does that paint jack as a as a christ figure i i wonder i don't know that that's something that has been built at although i think by the time you get to the finale that might be a discussion worth having Anyhow, back to this episode, the mammoth Chewy act, this first act, uh, concludes with gloom and doom warnings about how everyone, yes, everyone, must take the plane back to the island, and how Jack has a purpose. What purpose? Well, on the other side of the act break, Eloise takes Jack aside to give him John Locke's suicide note. Such a suicide had been hinted at for a long time, indeed the original screen grab newspaper article uh the uh, you know way back at the conclusion of season three that was the that was the hot speculation during uh during the summer between seasons three and four that uh you know kind of what could be gleaned from the hd screen cap and 
and uh, what could be pieced together. And I think they then later rewrote it for for when it uh, appeared more properly in season four. But certainly the notion of Locke's suicide, I think, to, to many of us was no mystery. Um, when it's presented here, the irony, of course, being that uh, it was no suicide and more on that in a bit. But it's at this point with uh, with uh, Eloise talking to Jack that the masterful casting of Finola Flanagan starts to surely, slowly show itself to be such, such a brilliant move. She's simply expositioning again, and you can never tell. She explains that Jack is the pro- is a proxy for uh, Christian, the the dad, not all the <laughs> all of the faith. Um, and just a moment there. Uh, pardon me, did I say Jack? I do apologize. She explains that Locke is a proxy for Christian. Let's just think about that. Let me repeat that again for the purposes of our discussion. Here we have in episode 506, title 316, the statement that Locke is a proxy for Christian. Foreshadowing if there ever was some bit of foreshadowing, because what's the Christian that we see now? Well, we might not know it as first-time viewers, but let's put on the other hat. We know it as we return viewers that Christian is smoky. So when, if Christian is smoky and Locke is going to be a proxy for Christian, you see it all comes together there. This is the first warning that when we see Locke alive on the island, that there is a problem, that the Christian that we see on the island, there's something strange about him. And if you can't put it all together on the first view, there's still something not quite right. Well, that continues with Locke because Locke is a proxy for Christian and we were told here. And at any rate, she explains that Locke needs something of Christians. And you know what? Speaking of Christians. Thomas the Apostle. When Jesus wanted to return to Judea, knowing that he would probably be murdered there, Thomas said to the others, Let us also go that we might die with him. But Thomas was not remembered for this bravery. His claim to fame came later, when he refused to acknowledge the resurrection. He just couldn't wrap his mind around it. The story goes, that he needed to touch Jesus' wounds to be convinced. So was he? Of course he was. We're all convinced sooner or later, Jack. What a lovely little scene, which of course starts with Ben reflecting, if not praying, in a church. And let's not forget that he'll deny himself entry into another church at the conclusion of the series, at least deny himself for the time being anyway. It's a wise, penitent scene, which casts Ben in an unusually sympathetic light. Here he is, talking about finding one's way on the path of righteousness. And I think that we're left feeling that perhaps he's not such a villain after all. The scene concludes with Ben leaving to keep a promise to an old friend as he means to tie up a loose end. He, the scripture quoter, is, of course, off to kill Penny. It's the slow, 
wonderful deadpan irony of the show. Something that I think many of us are aware of saying, wait, a promise to an old friend, tie up a loose end. It's, it's, it's terrifying in that, in that Penny and Desmond, while no longer the center of the narrative uh, for, for much of season five, means so much to us. And the notion that he's you know, going to kill them, the dramatic tension there is absolutely wonderful. And the fact that the show doesn't overdo it, the fact that they say this is a Jack episode, this is an Ajira episode, this is getting back to the island, we're going to let that story hang for the purposes of dramatic tension. It's wonderful. And of course, as Ben is announcing to us that he's off to go kill Penny, Jack is none the wiser. And I'm not bashing Jack here. I know. What a surprise. But it's, it's you know, it's just that, you know, he's off to go keep a promise and tie up a loose end. And we're screaming, no, won't someone stop him? By the way, on a side note, Jack sits on the same side, the right side of the screen, uh, in the church, as he will in the final church scene. With this, the show's retelling of the pilot, or at least the Crash Day story, continues. Jack, presumably drinking at the airport Sands Ana Lucia, gets a call that uh, someone is up to something. At least I read it as the airport bar, uh, shot from a similar angle. I don't know if it was the same location. It certainly appeared to me, well, at the very least, he's drinking before the flight, Um, but... And again, not right before the flight, but it's it's evocative of of that of that scene. Anyhow, what what proceeds after that, the call that someone is up to something, it's a really curious scene. But I think we can get to the bottom dramatically as to why it exists. We we have Jack with a mysterious older man. The show quietly labors to have Jack not call his granddad, granddad until they stretch the mystery long enough for Jack to then call him granddad over and over and over. He's saying a final goodbye as he helps his grandfather, who is trying to escape his assisted living facility. He's helping grandpa unpack. And what's at the bottom of the the suitcase? It's shoes. Not grandpa's shoes, but Christian's shoes. Now, So what was the function of that scene? It's a lengthy unfurling of Jack getting a prop that the show needs, which apparently, or for which apparently, it has not planned. This is kind of the out. Grandpa's taking you on a wild ride so you can go, oh, that's not my shoes, grandson. That's your father's shoes. (gasps) Wait a minute. Something of Christian's. Da-da-da-da. I'm not a particular fan of that scene. Because I think we see why it functions. It functions to just get a prop. And indeed, the next scene, it continues with Jack. And this is a Jack-heavy episode. It would be interesting to go back and count the number of scenes that he is or is not in. I would bet it's probably 90% of them. Anyhow, at this point, Jack is heading home to get a drink or to drink more when someone enters his home. Now, once again, it feels like a rather staged drama. Who could it be? I think that it just somehow instinctually feels like it will be Kate. And it is. uh, Because she's following him back to the island. At this point, she kisses him rather smushily. 
I'm not saying that it's not a passion-filled moment or it's not lascivious in her desire to make a bad decision or to, to commit to this man who's finally cleaned himself up and made himself worthy or or anything of that she kisses him the way i don't know it's not a it's not a dainty kind of hollywood kiss it's it's kate's looking kate's looking for something which works out well because they fall out of out of a shot of the camera onto the bed and they fall into an act break and after the break it's morning post-coitus here's to awkward decisions guys now at this point the show feels absolutely like it's sagging a bit in the middle portion we've had grandpa we've had smoochy smoochy with kate we've had the morning conversation and the jack storyline is just plodding as it really seems to be filling up the minutes of the show. Indeed, Jack talks about the white sneakers in which his father was buried because he didn't care to buy improper shoes. This, of course, is contrasted by the black dress shoes. Get it? It's, you know, the first episode of Lost. It's two sides, white and black. And yeah, you might be worried if you're watching this episode the first time or if you don't remember the particulars well, you might be saying... Ugh, where are things headed? Things are things headed. Is this gonna be an episode that just kind of sets things up and doesn't do much? Worry not, the answer is no, but anyhow, sagging as things may feel. Things do pick up when a pleasant call from Ben leads to a wonderful, wonderful 180-degree shot of Ben on the payphone, starting with his back to camera. We slowly turn around, and he's concluded that errand. We don't know with what uh, uh, degree of uh, success. And he has perhaps the most bloodied face he's ever had. Um, another mystery for the show to address down the line, of course, though. We can only assume if you put your head on, uh, you know, to the side for, for as a first time viewer, those first time viewers must be smart enough and can only assume the worst. Uh, only because of the tension created by did he do it? Did he kill Penny? Spoiler alert, no. Anyhow, with that, Jack goes to Jill the Butcher. Maybe they're going up a hill with a pail of water, I don't know, but Jack goes to collect to collect Locke's body and to put those shoes on him. And sure enough, it is dead Locke. Let's not forget that when Locke dies in the Jeremy Bentham episode that's upcoming, it's his... Uh, chronological last time on this earth and with that jack speaks to the dead wherever you are john you must be laughing your ass off that i'm actually doing this because this this is even crazier than you are
rest in peace. Having returned the suicide note to Locke, hey, that looked like the same note which Jack had, uh, you know, appeared to have a little portion of at the top of the episode. Uh, anyhow, this almost exceedingly, maybe that's a bit harsh, but this certainly Jack-heavy episode proceeds with Jack taking the body to Ajira Air. I'll just pause this moment and say uh, a well-known fact about this episode and the next one, Life and Death of Jeremy Bentham, uh, is, of course, that they were produced in, in, in opposite order. The intention initially was for Jeremy Bentham to air before it, uh, before this, rather. Splendid, splendid choice to uh, to switch them. Uh, obviously, I think a bit you know, more on that next week, but I just couldn't help but think to be told about the suicide and then find out otherwise is so much more effective than be saying, no, they're lying, they're lying, they're lying. Just wonderful. Uh, anyhow, Jack taking the body to Ajira Air. It's a tentative scene again. Kind of, you know, Grandpa Part 2, if you will. The questions from the ticket agent as to why Jack is taking the body of Jeremy Bentham to Guam. There's answers from Jack. There's Jack noticing Kate arriving at the airport, despite her saying that she was going to go with him just a few scenes ago. Um, and there's also the Blink and you'll miss it, but seriously, we'll show you long enough so there isn't the risk of missing it. Introduction of Caesar. Now, I'm not arguing that this is a bad episode, mind you, but it's just a little plodding at, at, at times for what appears to be little reason. Next up, the episode shows us Jack, this time in security. Sun arrives and the players seem to be coming together, including Saeed, with an as-yet-unnamed Alana. Ah, the lovely, lovely Alana. Yippee! Waving her badge and whisking him through security. And past security, there's a sweet, lovely little scene with Hurley, the only person thinking of collateral damage and its effect on strangers. Jira Airways, flight 316, with service to Honolulu and Guam, departing from gate 15. For those of you on the standby list, we'll have plenty of seats available. We would like to invite our people first class and the sky crew passengers to board the aircraft at this time. What do you mean standbys? Is there no standbys? Oh, no, sir. You don't need to worry. There are 78 seats open. No. How about those seats? All 78 of them. I'm Hugo Reyes. They're not open. They're mine. Check and see. Yes, I see that. Sir, these people just want to get to their destination. Why would you not want them to be able to travel? You know, it doesn't matter why. They can take the next plane. Hurley. What are you doing here? How did you know about the... Well, it matters that I'm here, right? Hurley's touching plan... Oh is highlighted by camera work, which shows the multitude being denied a spot on the plane. A lucky move, as we'll soon learn. But this is Jack boards the plane. He's shocked to see Saeed with Alana, Kate, Hurley, and ultimately Ben looking cleaned up, but still very, very painfully beat up. Uh, he sits, Ben does, by Jack, who notices a rather full coach section. Thus comes that wonderful question. What about them? 
Ben's answer, that Bible-quoting presumed penny-killer Ben, who cares? You, <laughs> if you thought that Ben was an okay guy, well, now the episode is arguing contrary to that. At any rate, the show imbues a great deal of care upon the flight of uh, the takeoff of Flight 316. It is, of course, kind of an Oceanic Six in reverse, minus Aaron, of course, and it's a wonderful, albeit quick, scene of our heroes returning to to what? Is it fate? Is it a prison of sorts? We on the return trip, of course, know better as we watch them on their return trip, but um, the scene captures this question as to what they are returning to. It's, uh, it's really, really well done. With that, Jack saunters up to Kate, talking knowingly, and Kate hits him with the line, we're all on the same plane, Jack, but that doesn't make us together. Yes, now, granted, Jack had just been talking about the odds of Hurley and Saeed being there, but I think there's little question that we are, once again, meant to hate Kate. She's had Jack the night before, and now that she's done with him, or angry at him, or confused as to her own choices, she's more than willing to push him away. With that, the captain of the plane says hello, and it's Frank Lapidus. Now, initially, it feels cute. But I think that it's got to sink in and something that we should not forget that he was originally going to fly flight 815. And here's to fate. Lapidus comes out of the, the cockpit. He's clean shaven and looks awfully grounded. He then sees Kate and Son and Hurley and Saeed and then just figures out that they aren't going to Guam. I love his devil may care attitude. It is what it is, he's essentially saying. Let's just buckle up and get ready for the wild ride. With that, we have an act break, and then Ben calmly reading. Jack, how, uh, how it is that he can read in a time like this. And Ben's wonderful, biting, dismissive, sarcastic response is, My mother taught me. We know it's not true. We know it's very not true. It is, in fact, Ben's verbal flipping of the bird to Jack. Sarcasm continues, albeit turned down very, very low. Jack asks if Ben knew that Locke killed himself. Ben's honest yet misleading answer, no, I didn't know that he killed himself. No kidding. The man who killed Locke didn't know about the suicide. With that, Jack hems and haws about the contents of Locke's letter. Does he open it? Will Locke blame him? It's, of course just a setup for the actual opening of the letter, which reads, Jack, I wish you had believed in me, J.L. It's simple, it's sad, it's sweet, it's heartbreaking. And on cue, the plane starts to shake, but not before Hurley puts on his sleep mask, a wonderful little touch. that they and we are back back at the start of the episode at least where the three of our heroes have returned it's a nice little narrative conceit it's in medius res starting in the middle or something like it the term of course is latin although the episode technically starts at the end and not the middle but 
anyhow. And as things start to wrap up, Kate hammers home the question that we have. Where's Ben? Where's son? Where's Saeed? Question of sure, of course, should be when? And the episode concludes with one heck of a twist. of the new Dharma van with Dharma Jin. It's just giant, giant fun. It's not just giant fun even for first-time viewers. We're about to hit the sweet spot of this episode, the wonderful return of Dharma, the, the Dharma 70s. It's just fantastic. I cannot wait to get to those episodes. It's such, such great fun, such great mythology. Fantastic, fantastic stuff. That, of course, will be in the future. For right now, let's take a look at Lostpedia for the bits and pieces I have missed. And note that this is the first of only two episodes of the series to lack a secondary storyline. The second was season six's Across the Sea. A fun bit of trivia here. This episode aired on February 18th in the United States. On this day, on a non-leap year, there are, uh, there are exactly 316 days left in the year. So I don't know if that's fate or coincidence, but good stuff nonetheless. Uh, they mention also that behind the passengers being screened for departure is a poster for Oceanic Airlines. They also say that uh, as the Ajira Airways plane takes off, an Oceanic jet is visible in the background. Moving on, the photo taken of the island for the U.S. Army, as uh, seen in the lamppost board, is labeled 92354. This is one day shy of 50 years before 815 crashed on the island. It was the autumn equinox in 1954, and 815 crashed on the autumn equinox of 2004. Don't quite know what to make of that, other than just a cute, you know, bit of, uh, not quite coincidence, but kind of, you know, scientific mumbo-jumbo, if you will. Uh, also noted is that one of the Virgin Mary statues can be seen in Eloise's office. For uh, now, for film fans, or at least fans of uh, film sound, this episode is the first to feature the famous Wilhelm Scream, a stock sound effect used in various popular film and television shows. It can be heard a few seconds before the white flash occurs on the plane. Also, as I mentioned earlier, this episode was originally intended to be the seventh of the season, but was later switched to air before the life and death of Jeremy Bentham. Lindelof confirmed on the official Lost podcast that this is the uh, this is only the second time in the show's history that the order has been switched, uh, happening in season one with Solitary and Raised by Another. Penultimately, this episode marks the first on-island flash forward, though some fans interpret this episode as being one long flashback instead of having a brief opening flash forward. Um... I kind of like the idea of it being, I mean, you know, they're they're playing a, uh, playing a bit vague with the, the narrative structure. But I mean, look, we start at a certain point. We then go back in time. Sounds like a flashback to me. 
then uh, get things explained and then we better understand character motivations. That sounds like a good old-fashioned flashback episode of Lost. Anyhow, uh, last bit of trivia here. The Dharma logo on Jin's jumpsuit is mostly obscured by his collar, but later in the series, it's revealed as a star of five points, the Sheriff Star logo of Dharma security. So, such fun stuff ahead of us with with Dharma. Uh, the flip side is we do have the rather weighty, sad episode next week, The Life and Death of Jeremy Bentham. Emphasis there on death because, of course, it is the final episode in which Locke will appear in the, uh, the chronological order of the show. Yes, he's back in the Flash Sideways, but that's later. And P.S. He's dead. This is the end. You know, when we first saw you know, him waking up on the beach when we, when we, you know, were introduced to that character. We've since flashed back, we've since flashed forward, but this is the end of that character next week. So with that, if you would like to share feedback, the best way to do so is to say hello to me on Twitter, where I'm looking back lost. You can call the listener line, 732-707-1815. Send an email to lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. Leave a comment on the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com You can always, of course, also leave a review on iTunes. Five stars are the best, of course. Uh, Just like that five-pointed star the Jin has. So with that, everybody, thank you, as always, for listening. It is truly such a joy to be able to get together each week and talk about Lost. There was a stretch in the past where I was many episodes ahead of when they released uh, lately with life being quite busy. I'm I'm doing an episode a week. I really should get ahead, especially with the busyness of the holidays looking ahead. But it is such a such a wonderful point in my week to say no. The time has come. I now have to watch my episode of Lost, and you know the next day sit and talk about it. And it really is it's such great fun to be getting together with all of you. And uh, you know, for those of you who do tweet and email and leave comments, uh, the conversation is always appreciated. And for those that do not. I'm glad that we're able to have our have our conversation over the podcast nonetheless. So thank you one and all. Talk to you all again next week for 507, The Life and Death of Jeremy Bentham. Take care and bye-bye. <laughs>